The following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, so we are continuing with our series in Revelation. And uh, last week, we did an introduction of Revelation, set the scene in terms of some big issues that we're going to encounter through Revelation, this issue of living in the shadow of the empire uh, and how we respond to that, how the first audience to Revelation would have responded to that, and then how we can somehow practice allegiance to the kingdom of heaven and the new creation right in the midst of this empire that we are living in. That is really the central question that uh, Revelation is, is grappling with and that we will grapple with through this series. Now today we will jump into the text of Revelation. Uh, we'll jump into chapter 1 and uh, just look at the first eight verses. It's really just the prologue to Revelation here. I don't mean to say just the prologue as if it's inferior, but John hasn't yet gotten to his visions. He hasn't gotten that far yet, but he's introducing himself and he's introducing his audience and he's introducing some themes that he'll pick up right through the context of this letter. So let's read it together. Revelation 1, verse 1. Hold on to your seats. Here we go. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's me at the moment. And blessed are those who hear it. That's you. And take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. So, I don't know whether any of you this week uh, went to any Anzac Day dawn ceremonies or Anzac Day services. Uh, we didn't. We didn't quite get to any, uh, but we had our own private little dawn ceremony at home because Lawson was screaming the last post from his bassinet. So, that was our Anzac Day celebration. Uh, but I, I was running an errand in the morning and, and driving home, got home at about 9.30 in the morning, and there were streams of people coming out of the Birkenhead uh, War Memorial Park, obviously just finished a service there. Uh, and so many of them were young families, so many strollers, young kids. And you read in the news, you know, there's such a resurgence of interest among young people in Anzac Day ceremonies. Uh, young families are going, teenagers are going. It's a wonderful thing. As, as the generation last generation of New Zealand's war veterans is slowly passing away, there's this resurgence of interest from a new generation. Uh, parents are wanting to connect their children with the stories 
uh, of what others have done to purchase their freedom, and especially the emerging generation, which can be so entertainment-focused, so Facebook-obsessed, so self-interested, uh, to connect them with a broader story is really honourable. And I assume this is being done in an effort to try and shape who they are in the present, um, give these kids and young people a sense of their, themselves that is more selfless than it is selfish. And this is good. I think this is really good and healthy for us as a country. This is a bit similar to what John is doing in the prologue to Revelation. He's writing to a group of Christians who are struggling to keep the memory of Jesus alive. Uh, not that they've forgotten that he existed, but they're losing sight of his centrality and his importance within their community. They're living within this pervasive and all-consuming and all-controlling empire of Rome, and it's so easy for that flame of devotion to Jesus, his importance, his supremacy in their lives. It's so easy for that flame to just start to flicker a little bit. That's what John's worried about. That's what's starting to happen, that their allegiance to Jesus is getting a bit shaky, and they're not bringing the memory of Jesus and his death and resurrection and his establishing of the kingdom. They're not bringing that into the present and really living out of that as a central experience in their lives. They're, they're allowing the empire to squeeze them into its mold. And so John starts by setting before his audience this wonderful statement. It's really a statement of worship, at least through verses 4 through 8. And Father, Son, and Spirit are all here. It's Trinitarian. Uh, past, present, future are all here. It's eternal. It's a beautiful statement placing God in three persons right at the center of this book and encouraging him to be right at the center of our lives. Now, the key phrase here is found in verse 8. It's this phrase where God describes himself as the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Interestingly, this is one of only twice in the entire book of Revelation where, where God the Father speaks. Uh, Jesus speaks plenty of times, but God the Father only speaks twice. Here, and then again at the end of the letter in, in chapter 21, where he says, Behold, I'm making everything new. So those statements from the throne, those statements from God the Father, they bookend this letter. Uh, I think technically those words in verse 8 shouldn't be in red if you've got a red letter Bible. They're not technically from Jesus. They're really better ascribed to God the Father, the one upon the throne. And more interestingly than that, he's talking about himself. So this is a key statement uh, that enables us to understand who God is and who God is revealing himself to be in the book of Revelation. And he describes himself as the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And that phrase is so important. John uses the same language back in verse 4 where he says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And if you look at the verses between those two statements, they're actually structured around the same tenses that that phrase uses. It starts with the present tense in verse 4 and 5. Then it moves to the past tense, the end of verse 5 and verse 6, and then the future tense in verse 7. This is a passage about time. This is a passage about the centrality of God in the midst of time. Back in 9 BC, there was a guy living in the province of Asia, same province where these churches of Revelation were. His name was Paulus Fabius Maximus. Good Roman name, eh? And Paulus Fabius Maximus entered a competition. They had competitions back then. It was a competition run by the Provincial Council of Asia. 
this province. And the, the province of Asia, the council wanted to find the best way of worshipping Caesar. It, it was like the province of Asia just wanted to really be the most venerating province towards Caesar, really give him the greatest accolades. They wanted to stand out as the part of the empire that was most respectful, most worshipful of Caesar. So they ran a competition and said, who can come up with the highest honors that we could as a region bestow upon Caesar? And Paulus Fabius Maximus had a stunning idea. He said, why don't we come up with our own calendar? And we should make the birthday of the emperor, Caesar Augustus, we should make his birthday New Year's Day. September the 23rd, it is in our calendar. So that should become New Year's Day so that the entire calendar revolves around Caesar. What greater way could there be of honoring this man than bending time around him, than putting the whole calendar wrapped around this guy? Now, what Paulus Fabius Maximus wrote to the council has actually been preserved. We have a copy of it. And let me read you some of the preamble that he wrote about Caesar warming up to his proposal. But this is just to give you an idea of how far people wanted to suck up to Caesar in the first century. He says, It is difficult to know whether the birthday of the most divine Caesar is a matter of greater pleasure or greater benefit. We could justly consider that day to be equal to the beginning of all things. He gave a new appearance to the whole world, which would gladly have accepted its own destruction had Caesar not been born for the common good fortune of all. Thus, a person could justly consider his birth to be the beginning of life and existence and the end of all regrets about having been born. Imagine saying that about John Key. I mean, this is pretty full on. This is talk about greasing up. This guy absolutely loved Caesar, clearly. And um, no surprises, the council loved the suggestion. And sure enough, they implemented it. In 9 BC, the province of Asia was the only province in Asia, in, in the empire, to adopt its own calendar. They still observed the Greek and Roman calendars so they could interact with the rest of the world. But they had their own calendar that revolved around Caesar. And as far as we know, that calendar was still in effect by the time Revelation was written. So for these people, hearing this letter, the whole way they marked time in their lives was in reference to the empire. It was in reference to the empire. Caesar was the center of time for them because the empire knew if you really want to determine someone's worldview, if you really want to reach inside their heart and structure their whole lives, one of the most fundamental realities you can play with is their experience of time. If they experience the whole rhythm of life and time as revolving around someone or something, you've gone a long way to structuring their whole worldview around that person. This is how it was with Caesar. This is how it was with these Christians. So John comes along, and his goal from the beginning is to restructure his audience view of reality, not around Caesar, but around Jesus, around God, around the Holy Spirit. And he starts just where the empire started, by redefining their sense of time. That's why all of this time language is there, because John wants them to understand that God is the center of all time. Not so much that God's outside of time, but that God is the center of time. He is past and he is present and he is future. He's the center of time and not the emperor. He is the one that time revolves around, not the emperor. And so the challenge for John's readers and the challenge for us is to center our lives around this God, to center somehow our experience of time around God and to develop rhythms and practices in our life that will take their primary reference point from God 
and not from the empires that we find ourselves in. So let's explore this phrase a little bit more because it's so central. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. Notice that both times it's used in this passage, it starts with the present tense. When we say this, we use it in songs and prayers sometimes, God, you are the one who was and is and is to come. We just roll it chronologically. We just say God was, past, is, present, future. But John doesn't do that. Uh, God doesn't do that. God says, I am the one who is. He starts with the present. Then he goes to the past. Then he goes to the future. That in itself is quite significant. That God is the God of the past and the future, but first and foremost, He is the God of the present. He is the God who is here. He is the God who is with us in this moment, who is present to you, who is present with you, who is walking alongside you. It, it reminds me of the first time that God gives Himself a name in the Bible when He appears to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses asks God his name, and you, you remember what God says, I am who I am. Not I was who I was, not I will be who I will be, but I am who I am. God is present to his people in every single moment. And the way in which he's present is by his spirit. Look at the reference in verse 4 to the seven spirits before his throne. That's a bit perplexing because I thought there was just one spirit. And now suddenly we've got seven. In fact, literally it says the sevenfold spirit. And I think what's happening here is the, the number seven in Revelation is the number of completion or perfection. That's generally what it means. So probably in verse four, this is a reference to the one Holy Spirit who is perfect and complete, not to seven different spirits. So the point is that God is present and the way in which he is present to us is by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God mediates the presence of the Father and Son to us by his Spirit. The Spirit of God is God with us, His empowering presence with us, with you. Whatever you're going through, some of you just need to hear this word, uh, if nothing else in this passage, that God is right there with you. Uh, whatever this moment is defined by for you, if it's a time of struggle and stress and tiredness, if it's a time of celebration and achievement and accomplishment, whatever you're going through, God is with you. He is with you. Emmanuel, God with us. Sometimes we just need to stop and enjoy the presence of God. Not always barging into His presence with the shopping list. Not always even just talking at Him with worship songs. But sometimes just being still and knowing that He is God in this moment. That He is with me. That He's with us. Before He's anything else, God is the God who is and he's not only present he's also past he's the one who is and he's the one who was and when John talks about the past he's not just talking about the distant past when God first created everything although that's mentioned here too but what John's really interested in is the more recent past of what Jesus has done on the cross that's where he gets to in verse 4 and 5. The one who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests. That's the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross. He's freed us. He's forgiven us. 
He's made us to be priests to serve the living God. The cross is that great past saving event of God that should determine our, uh, our present. It should structure our reality. It should give us tremendous security in the present because we know who we are when we look at the cross. We see who we were because we see the sin that was laid upon Jesus on the cross. But we also see who we are because we see the extent of the Father's love for us revealed in the suffering of the Son. We see our value because we see what lengths he was prepared to go. It gives us hope that he's restored us and he will, he will enable us to share in the new creation. I was at a meeting recently of some, some pastors and church leaders and one pastor was talking about how he just feels so judged by his congregation. I couldn't relate to him at all, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, but he was talking about he gets criticized and he just feels judged and he feels like his people are just against him. And he went and saw a counselor about this and he was explaining it to the counselor and this counselor just looked at him, paused for a minute and then said, isn't it funny how the cross is not enough? Just think about it. Isn't it funny for us how the cross is so often not enough? We're grateful for it, but we still need the applause of people. We're appreciative of Jesus, but I still need people's vindication in the present. But if the cross was truly enough for us, then we should know who we are. We should know whose we are. It should fill us with a deep inner peace because we are forgiven and we are free. We've got to keep looking back to the past. Keep looking back to the cross because it will determine and structure your present. So God is present and God is past and God is also future. It's the first time here of many times in Revelation that John mentions the, the future return of Jesus and he describes it in verse 7 by saying, Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. It's interesting, though, this is not really a note of celebration here. You might expect John to say, you know, all peoples of earth will have a party because of him. But he doesn't say that. I think John is picturing here the return of Jesus from the perspective of people who don't know him. And from the perspective of people who have resisted the love of Jesus, who have refused his invitation to new life, who have kept him at arm's length, and have, have held back his offer of relationship and his offer of the kingdom. Those people, when Jesus returns, they will not experience it as a day of great celebration at all. It will be a day of mourning because it will be a day of realization. It'll be a day of realizing the opportunity that they passed up, the incredible error that they have made in rejecting the Lord of glory the new creation that they are now excluded from, the judgment that faces them, and the reality that they now face eternity separated from the presence of God. That is the reality. It's harsh and it's not fun to talk about, but it's the reality. And I think John is subtly saying to us, just be careful. He's writing after all to Christians and he's saying, just be careful that when Jesus returns, you're on the right team. Don't get so cozy with the empire. That when Christ returns, you find yourself having given your primary allegiance to another God and another Lord. Make sure that you are a faithful follower of Christ so that truly his return will be for you a day of great celebration and not mourning. And let me just point out one thing about this future dimension of, uh, of God because I just love it and I discovered this in my prep and I just can't resist sharing it with you. 
Revelation 11. Turn over to Revelation 11 just for a second. Uh, verse 17 in Revelation 11. There's a, there's a similar phrase here to the one that's used in Revelation 1. The God who is and who was and who is to come. It, it reappears here but slightly differently. And the difference is so significant. Revelation eleven seventeen, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. There's the present and the past. But look at what happens now to the future. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You see what's happened here? The future has become present. Because the future of God is coming about as God begins to reign now. He hasn't left it all for that day when Jesus returns. He hasn't kept the entirety of his new creation at bay until that day, but he has taken his great power and already begun to reign. It's like God couldn't help himself. As soon as he raised Jesus from the dead, he's been bringing new creation about all over the place. First signs and glimpses of the new creation, first bricks of the new heavenly city, already being laid through the faith and the hope and the love of God's people. So when we say that God is the one who is to come, we're not just saying Jesus is going to return one day in the future. We're saying he is the God who is already coming in power through his spirit, through his people. His arrival has already begun and he's now calling us to participate in it through being new creation people. So there's present and there's past and there's future. And John is saying to his readers, saying to his hearers, make sure that you center your lives around this God. Make sure that you center your experience of time around this God and develop rhythms in your life that will help you do that. You might think at first brush that's, a, that, that's not a relevant message to us because, again, we're not part of the Roman Empire. And after all, don't we have a calendar that's now AD, BC? You know, isn't it all done for us? We've got a calendar structured around Jesus. Now we're done, right? After, before Christ, after Christ. But does that really mean much to us day to day? A lot of the time, the way that we mark time in our culture and in our society is often referenced by things other than God. Not necessarily bad things, but just other things. Uh, if you've got school kids, you generally live in school terms. And you know exactly where you are in the term and you know when the next set of holidays are coming. Or you might live structuring your life around the financial year. Or structuring it and thinking around commercial holidays like Mother's Day and Father's Day, Valentine's Day. Maybe around the annual leave camping trip that you're going to take at the end of the year. All of these things punctuate our time. All of these things give us a sense of who we are, develop the rhythms of our life. The challenge for us is to develop rhythms of life that give some allegiance to God and enable God to be central in our experience day to day and week by week. And there's one practice that's hinted at here that I want to mention to you. Just a couple of verses on from our passage today in verse 10. We find John, John's introducing his vision and he tells us that he was on the island of Patmos and he, he makes a point of saying in verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet and he goes on. It's fascinating that he says that this all happened on the Lord's day. After all, John's by himself on an island. There's no one else there with him. There's nothing else to do except make sandcastles. He's just there and yet it's important to him that this was the Lord's Day, which would have been Sunday. This was the Lord's Day when he received these visions and he was particularly in the spirit, that is, he was in an attitude of worship when this happened. It was important for John that even in exile, he was still practicing Sabbath. 
He was still practicing this, this Lord's Day. And if John was doing it by himself in exile, it's probably not a bad idea for us to practice as well. I think the practice of Sabbath is a way of experiencing this God who is present, past, and future. Because Sabbath means taking a day each week where we intentionally and deliberately focus ourselves on the present, past, and future of God. It's not a day for doing nothing. That's often how we think about it. But it's not just a day for for just resting physically the whole day. It's a day for orientating ourselves around, posturing ourselves toward God. Sometimes being very active, but doing things that really engage us and connect us with God. You think of the present, past, future thing, that's a good way of thinking about what the Sabbath could be. It's a way of enjoying God's presence, the fact that He is with us, experiencing His presence. It's a good way of remembering His past. That's why we gather on Sundays as a church, part of why we gather. We take communion, we remember what Jesus has done. Our minds go back to the cross and the resurrection. They also go forward, but they go back to what Jesus has done for us. We remember and we celebrate the past. And Sabbath is also about holding on to the God who is to come, letting our hearts be pulled forward to the future, to the new creation, and being new creation people in the present. Taking pieces of the future, bringing them into the present, maybe through being a blessing to somebody else, through extending love. This is quite an active thing to do on the Sabbath. Maybe it's not so passive after all. Maybe the Sabbath is about doing what Jesus did on the Sabbath, bringing healing into people's lives. He got in trouble for it because he was breaking the rules. But Jesus practiced the Sabbath in bringing pieces of God's new creation to earth, even if it meant it wasn't a day of complete rest. Is there somebody that you can bless on the Sabbath? Is there a way of looking outside of yourself? Don't get hung up on what day of the week it is. It doesn't matter. could be Saturday, could be Sunday, could be Wednesday. The point is to take a day. And I know that there are all kinds of excuses as to why you can't do this. I know them because I've got most of those excuses myself. I mean, the primary one is I've got young kids. I can't possibly observe anything like a Sabbath. If the Sabbath is defined by silence, I'm dead in the water. If it's defined by uh, physical rest, I'm out. If it's defined by peace, uh, I'm not there. So those kind of things would disqualify me. But think about the Sabbath not as doing nothing, but as taking yourself, taking your family and orientating them toward God. So bringing your family to a church gathering is a very healthy Sabbath practice. Taking your family for a walk through God's good creation and remembering the Creator God. It's a very healthy Sabbath practice. Thinking together about how you as a family might be able to incarnate the love of Christ in your neighborhood is a healthy Sabbath practice. Broaden your thinking around Sabbath. Yes, it's rest and it is enjoying the presence of God, but think also about remembering His past and practicing the hope of His future. And that might get you a little bit more creatively engaged in the practice of Sabbath. And I know too that there are people who are shift workers and they just don't have the kind of schedule where they can block out a whole day, and that's okay. Maybe just think about taking Sabbath moments. Maybe start there. Are there times, are there those moments that come where you're not frantically busy, where you can just reconnect with, re-engage with God and dwell in this picture of the present and the past and the future God? I was uh, reading a book the other day. It was one of those rare times in our family at the moment where both of our boys were asleep. Those times are very few and far between. They are sacred times. 
and uh, they're both asleep. I settled down with a, with, a, with a book that was by Eugene Peterson called Eat This Book. That's the name of it, Eat This Book. It's a very good book. Uh, and I was reading away and came to a, a, a passage where he quotes a woman called Kathleen Norris. And I felt as I read this like I was just looking in a mirror of where I was at right in that moment. It's just something God used to speak to me. Uh, he quotes her as saying this, Those who manage to find God in a life filled with noise, the demands of other people, and relentless daily duties that can consume the self. They may be young parents juggling child-rearing and making a living. And I'm thinking, hello, this is sounding like me. Uh, if they are wise, they treasure the rare moments of solitude and silence that come their way and use them not to escape, to distract themselves with television and the like. Instead, they listen for a sign of God's presence and they open their hearts toward prayer. And with that, I just took that as a sign from above. I put down my book and picked up my Bible and just spent a little bit of time, the few moments that I had, reconnecting with God, orientating my heart toward Him and practiced a Sabbath moment. Uh, that may be as far as it can go for you right now, and that's okay. Uh, maybe later on you can look at your schedule a little bit more, but even beginning to practice these Sabbath moments, they're not just about being good Christians. They're not about ticking a box and observing some moral law. They are, in the broader sense, about subverting the empire. They're about saying no to the dominant empires of our day. Think about the dominant empire of the middle class New Zealand machine thriving on productivity, efficiency, and industry that will chew us up and spit us out and make each of us a little cog in this huge machine that we're a part of. We're in that world and we can't escape it. But in the midst of it, by practicing Sabbath, we are resisting the empire's attempt to control our lives and define our being. And we are giving our allegiance to the God upon the throne. We are taking the time to celebrate and experience the present, past, future God. The Jews have a Sabbath practice called the Havdalah. They have a candle burning all through the Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night. And on Saturday night, sundown, when their Sabbath ends, they take uh, some of the Sabbath wine, because for them the Sabbath involves wine. It may or may not for you, but it involves wine. They take some Sabbath wine and they spill it over into a saucer and then they extinguish the candle in the saucer. And this Havdalah symbolizes the reality that the Sabbath now should spill over into the next six days. That the Sabbath is not for itself alone, but it should start to reorientate our whole lives. I think it's a beautiful picture of why practicing Sabbath can be so powerful because it's not one day just for itself. It starts to affect the rest of our life. It starts to affect our working lives. It starts to affect our social lives. It starts to affect our family lives. It starts to order us around another reality because it defines us by a rhythm that is not of the empire, but takes its reference from the heart of God. It's a way of centering our lives around Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a way of resisting the empire's pull on our mind and our heart and our soul. And it's a way, a simple way, a humble and quiet way of practicing the presence of the God who is and who was and who is to come. So may we be Sabbath people. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are the God of the present. You're with us right now. We thank you that you are the God of the past. 
You created all things. And you've sent Jesus to give us life, to die our death, to bring us into your kingdom. And you are the God of the future, the one who's yet to come and the one who is already coming. You've taken your great power and you have begun to reign. God, we ask that you would begin to reign through us and that you would show us how we can orientate our lives around you and orientate somehow our experience of time around you. For each of us in this room, Lord, I pray you'd make this practical today. Just show each of us, Lord, how we can be Sabbath people, how we can implement rhythms in our life that would help us to experience time as it revolves around you and not all of the other things that pull for our attention. God, we're in this world and we, we don't want to and we, and we can't and shouldn't escape it. But in the midst of the empire we find ourselves in, help us to center ourselves, our lives, our time around you, the one on the throne, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.